0: Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives Podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's show we meet two British rock musicians, both of whom, when they got their first guitars, were influenced by and played blues, and both were at the top of their game with huge critical and commercial success. Biff Bifford met up with some future long-term friends who'd become the powerhouse metal band Saxon, Ian Anson, on the other hand, traded his electric guitar for a flute and again with a bunch of friends formed Jethro Tull, whom he's led ever since. East London Radio, on Podcast Radio. So first, let's meet Biff Bifford, the son of a Yorkshire textile worker. I asked him what his memories were as a child.
1: Well, uh, um, quite good, actually. I lived in the countryside, over near the Pennines, near Holmfirth. So I had a bit of a, a, a country... A country upbringing, really. There was a, um, you know, my father worked in the uh, in the textile mills, basically, um, and so did my mother. So before that, he was a coal miner, but not not while I was alive. Uh, so yeah, it was expected that I would go uh, to work in the in the textile mills or the coal mine. So uh, my first job was actually uh, a carpenter. Uh, but it was connected to the, to the factory, basically. So, uh, you know, worked in the factory. And that was my upbringing, really, you know. Uh, local school. It was a village that was um, quite a large village with a, with a couple of factories and a coal mine not far off. So that was what I expected to do, yeah.
0: You're a tall lad. You were too tall to work down the mine, I think.
1: I was. I was two tall. I was six foot one. So I was... And the, and the you know, the seam... In the coal mine, people who don't know, it seems where they get the coal from, and uh, the ceiling of the coal mine where you're in determines the, the depth of the coal, so it was only three foot where, where it was, so I was deemed to be too uh, tall to work in there, it was mostly all Polish guys actually that came over, I presume after the war, they were all Polish coal miners. So, um,
0: so were you relieved not to be actually in the pit and down the three foot tunnels
1: well i spent i spent some time training down the pit but i didn't spend a lot no i spent a couple of days and then they it took me out they gave me a job um, uh working the boilers for the steam engines which is great for me because i love steam engines anyway so that was pretty cool you know and uh i was a boilerman and banksman <laughs> which is a pretty responsible job because you've got to Ring the bell to pull people up and back down again. So, but I didn't. I didn't cut anybody enough. So oh, that's all right. I must though, have been all right. That's yeah. pretty good. Eh? So, yeah. it
0: was music in your life at this point?
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, you know pop music around, the Beatles and the Kinks and all that Liverpool scene and the more Rolling Stones, you know, around. And yeah, I was into I was into the rockier type of music if you could call it that
0: you're more stones than beatles were you
1: yeah I was more of a stone but I loved the beatles I loved their song but I was more of a stones the look of the stones I liked I didn't really like the uniform of the beatles it was a bit um, it was a bit too much shirt and tie for me but uh, I liked the the raggedy, more sort of uh, thrown together look of the stones you know
0: So you learned to play guitar but it was a friend who taught you
1: It was a, it was a friend but the first time I, I played guitar was a uh, neighbor played banjo and um, he taught me how to play the bass guitar, actually, because it's the same tuning, a banjo as the bass guitar. But my original uh, sort of quest into playing music was through my friend's brother and he played in a blues band. He had all the gear, Fender Strat, AC-30, you know, and all that. So he showed me some chords on guitar and... Uh, you know, I loved it, so I learnt to play. You know.
0: And what were you playing? What's uh, whose material were you playing at that point?
1: Rolling Stone, Paint It Black, that sort of thing, simple stuff. You know, uh, oh, a few really bu- bu- Buddy things. Through. You because know, 'cause they're easy. And um, yeah, I was singing along at that point. But I became a uh, I became a bass player after that. I played in a youth club band, guitar, but I moved on to bass. Um, I don't think I was really cut out to spend the amount of time and uh, effort to learn to play guitar properly, you know, didn't lead you also, guitar.
0: Didn't you also consider the flute?
1: I didn't I did play the flute. Uh, my friend's brother, same band, said, you can join the band if you learn to play flute, so my dad bought me a flute and off I went. But everything was in sort of A and E and D, so it was all fairly really relative to each other. So yeah, I played flute, I played blues music. And with a flute,
0: yeah. Ian Anderson, Jethro Tull. I mean, obviously he's the big, famous flute player. He said he played flute because He realised he couldn't be as good at guitar as Eric Clapton.
1: Yeah, that's probably that's probably true, and that's probably why I learned to play bass because I knew I wouldn't be as good as um, you know Chuck Berry or somebody like that. You know what I mean? Or even my brother's mate. Well, you done okay. Good. Yeah, I've done okay. I've done okay for myself. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about some of the other bands you were influenced by. So you mentioned to me, before we started, Wishbone
1: Ash. Yeah, I used to see Wishbone Ash quite a lot in the 70s. And, um, you know, they were, I think they were quite groundbreaking, really close vocal harmonies. And I think they probably invented the twin guitar. I think they were probably before Thin Lizzy, I think. Um, So I think they were really influential, especially on guitar players and that melodic, sort of uh, rock that they were brilliant at, you know. Um, I, think, I mean, I saw the Doobie Brothers back then a couple of times, but they didn't quite impress me as much as Wishbone Ash did.
2: Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private
0: Lives. Viff Byford is my guest from Saxon. So you're um, listening to music, you're playing guitar, you're in various bands around the Barnsley area at this point. I
1: came to Barnsley through, through a marriage girlfriend thing. I came to that area. Yeah, and then I was in bands there, but I wasn't in Saxon or the other band. I was in a band called the I Am Mad Wilkinson Band. So they were like a bluesy, hippy, rock and roll band.
0: And how long did that last?
1: Yeah, probably over a year. I wanted to play something a little bit more like Cream, you know, a bit more jammy, a bit more adventurous. So that's when me and Paul got together, really.
0: And how did that happen? How did that meeting happen?
1: Well, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I played with a friend of mine who, who was very agoraphobic, so, who was a brilliant guitarist as well, a guy called Chris Morris, and uh, the, the gigging thing wasn't really working, so he decided to leave, and we got Paul as a replacement, he was, the, he was the another great guitarist locally that we'd heard about, and uh, yeah, he came along and jammed it, worked, and he joined us. So we'll get on
0: to Saxon in a second. Let's just play one more song uh, from a band who are influential. And you talked about Led
1: Zeppelin. Yeah, so I saw Led Zeppelin in, in, at the Bath Festival in... Uh, or the Bath Festival in 72. Um, it was very southern. Yeah, 72. And, uh, yeah, they were brilliant. You know, they looked great. I don't know if they played great. I can't remember, but I think they played great. But the whole look and the whole song, you know... Although, they were just they great. You know, brilliant band, brilliant songs. I mean, they were all very blues-based songs. I think most of them were taken from uh, blues classics and they just changed the title, but I think they probably put a lot of those blues guys on the map, Led Zeppelin. You're listening to Podcast Radio. So, um, we formed Saxon, and there's, there's a
0: lot of metal bands being formed in the UK at this point. There's quite a strong metal, heavy rock movement, and Saxon's mm. really at the front of all this.
1: We created a sound... You know, lyrically I was writing about things that, you know, younger, younger guys were into, interested in, giving it a different slant I suppose. And uh, yeah, people bought into it I and mean, we had some good songs. Maiden were around, Leopard, you know, Young Leopard were around with their sort of EP, Diamond Head and Tigers of Pantan. There were some great bands around. I and mean, you
0: had amazing energy, both you know, on record and on stage. I mean, it just it just pumped out energy the whole time.
1: A lot of it was all about the uh, the energy and controlling the aggression and just letting it go. Right? It it wasn't particularly um, too musical, if you know what I mean. We weren't really trying to sell ourselves as super musicians. It, it was a band. We were coming from a, a very volatile you know background really with the coal mine strikes and the electricity strikes and you know Margaret Thatcher's you know chaining everything upside down so we came from that um, from that background and um, I suppose we were one of the bands of that generation
0: this is Paul Robinson on Private Lives and Biff Byford is my guest. You had a, you know, a long run with Saxon and um, you did a lot of gigs, but um, you played some of the smaller venues as well as the larger ones.
1: We've always mixed up bigger venues and small venues together. I suppose that one of the things that makes us unique, because we're not... Um, Why did you do
0: that? Because you wanted to reach well, we're not out really to striving.
1: We're not really striving to headline an arena, but we do headline some arenas. But that just comes because of our popularity, if you know what I mean. It doesn't come from some master plan.
0: Does it feel different to you as an artist on stage when you've got a smaller audience? Do you prefer that?
1: Uh, I like them all, really. I, you know, you're a bit I do, I you're just, more intimate, isn't it? We're I just love audiences, period. So, right. you know, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of an audience man, you know, so.
0: Well, you're the front guy. I mean, you are the man at the front of the band. You're the guy communicating with the audience, you know, first off, aren't you?
1: Well, not every, every singer does that. I mean, I, I do that and I've created a sort of uh, a sense of um, camaraderie between the band and the audience. That's the sort of thing I try to create.
0: Well, let's talk about the solo album. This is now your, your first ever solo album. It so is. Uh, you must be pretty excited. Um, and um, you've gone for um, you know, School of Hard Knocks. Is this autobiographical? I guess it is.
1: The song is definitely there. Are some autobi- autobiographical songs on there, uh, but it's not all that. Um, no, I, I think it's just um, you know it's me writing writing songs and uh, you know lyrics about things that affect me and uh, you know things that I believe and uh, and some of it's just straight rock and roll. Some of it's there's prog metal, prog rock on there, you know. So It's just the styles of music I like.
0: Have you had more freedom on this solo album than you had with Saxon to, to express your personal feelings and, as you say, talk about your life?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think with Saxon, I don't think I can really sing about my childhood in Saxon, if you know what I mean. Although a lot of Saxon songs are based around that, you know, Never Surrender and "Life things that happened to me. But I think the School of Hard Knocks—it's just specific to me. So I think for me to do a solo album, it has to be connected to me, if you know what I mean. Not all of it, but I think 50% of the album is connected to me and um, my life. You know what I mean?
0: As you say, there's tremendous contrast, light and shade on the album. You've actually done a version of Scarborough Fair, the Simon and Garfunkel song, which is not an obvious choice for the front guy from Saxon.
1: Well, it's actually not a Salmon & Garfunkel song, I was, they didn't write it. it's a traditional folk song. Right. Most people know it as the uh, Salmon & Garfunkel song, but no, I used, we used to sing that song at school. When I was at school, we had to play piano, we'd sing Scarborough Fair. So I've been brought up with that song in some respects. Uh, so when Salmon & Garfunkel uh, did it, I was thinking, oh, that's a good idea, you know what I mean, taking that song. Um, so they are credited as, as the songwriters, but they're not the songwriters, and I, I think they go out of their way to say they're not the songwriters. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to do a song that was um, about where I lived, and Scarborough is a place I used to go when I was a boy, and it, it's holidays. not, its not yeah, on holiday, yeah. but more on day trips, actually. We, I used to go to the south coast on holidays, but we go for the day trip, Saturday, Sunday, my uncle's car. Fish and chips. We'd go to Scarborough, yeah, fish and chips go out on the boats on the sea and it's a great place and, um, and in fact I've just been back there to shoot a video so um, for that song so um, yeah it was uh, there's only two songs I know of that's Scarborough Fair and um, I know about Bartat so I didn't really want to do a, a rock version of that so we tried Scarborough Fair uh, and it, it seemed to work really well so put it on there yeah.
0: You're back on the road. You've got uh, ten dates on this next tour.
1: Yeah, we do in Europe as well. So we've got about twenty-five dates. But ten dates um, in the UK. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, in the UK. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to um, use a format which's not been done before. We're going to have the first part like a talk show. An uh, American comedian, friend of mine, is coming over, and we're going to chat about the old days together. And in
0: between the songs.
1: No. Oh, before, the set, before the set, before the show, oh, right. it's a, a show in itself, there's two shows, yeah, oh, and um, so we're going to do that, we might have a Q&A with the audience, I don't know, we'll see how it goes, sometimes audiences like that, sometimes they're a bit shy, you know, they don't want to, you know, be seen to be asking questions, so we'll keep it loose and uh, then we'll have a short break and then we'll go and do a full-on rock show. And that's, that's the a, idea. That's
0: a really interesting format, I think that's been done, I can't I, think I don't think, think it's, it's done been before. done
1: before. I mean some people go out and do like an acoustic thing and then tell stories you know but I'm going to do it totally different because um, that's how I am.
0: Fantastic and do you enjoy being on the road? I mean I guess you must do because you don't need to continue being on the road, you must want to do it.
1: Uh, it. It is, when it's running great, it is great on the road different show every night, different audience you get to meet people you know, have some fun with your friends uh, so it is a great time. The, the downside of it is the waiting and the, and the traveling is a pain in the neck. But you have to do that. If you're going to be a worldwide band, you have to tour, tour the world.
0: It's hotel to hotel and uh, flight yeah. to flight. And I that. mean,
1: a lot of it's on a bus, you know, especially in America. The distances are so far. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's good fun. We like it. And, it, you know, you get paid well for it. So it's... Good
0: and in the actual set, um, what are you going to do? I guess you're going to do stuff from the new album, but obviously the Saxon classics as well. Doing
1: album, we're doing stuff from the album, we're going to do a few cover versions, okay? You know, songs that I like.
0: Anything you can uh, tell us?
1: No, and uh, (laughs) oh, good try, and uh, yeah, we might do a couple of Saxon classics. I'm sure you must. I mean, I might involve the audience in that, but don't forget it, the, the band aren't Saxon, so I don't know how many songs they're going to know, so, you know, look to them, really.
0: Biff thank you very much.
1: No problem, thank you very much.
0: Biff Bifford on his solo career and the wheels of steel of Saxon.
2: Um, well, East London's the most vibrant area of London
0: by far. Like, I spent a lot... I
1: love what East London Radio is all about, because it's all about the community, it's, it's about bringing different people together, different views, and I love talking, <laughs> which is, yeah, so that's right up my street as well. Uh,
2: we all do it for, for the love of it, because we love radio, we love
0: what we do, and East London Radio is such a good community, radio. We are East London Radio. My next guest is Ian Anderson, vocalist, flautist and leader of Jethro Tull, whose folk and blues tints progressive rock has led to album sales of more than 60 million. When we spoke, Ian was preparing to go on tour, a tour which never happened because of the worldwide lockdown. You're on tour and it's a pretty hectic tour. Dates in the UK later in 2020, but you've got a lot of European dates. It's a very extensive tour. Well, it's Actually not
2: a tour, it's um, a series of Tourette's, not the Syndrome, but mini tours, and um, I, I've always, I think since 1969 when I first went to the USA and the first time I was really away from home for a long time it was 13 weeks, and I remember at that point thinking this is just too long, it is not fun, you know, after four or five weeks it stops being fun. And so we did for many years do tours that were maybe four to six weeks long in different countries. But in the last few years, I've increasingly preferred to do short stints. You know, where I'm at home, ideally, you know, I would, I would, I would go away on a, on a Thursday night, positioning, travel, play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come home Monday morning. So I would have three nights in my own bed every week. You know that would be that would be ideal. I can I can do that until um, until I pop off. Really, um, that's that's you know that's that's a good way to work. But the downside is it works in Europe. It doesn't work in faraway places where it's you maybe you know you you can't just go to America and play three shows. Well, you can, but I mean economically it's nuts. <laughs> so um, usually we have to go away a little longer. But but last year, for example, we we were only away for seven or eight days and you know I can live with that but I, I do as I get older I really do prefer to spend a few nights at home you know family friends I don't really have any friends well family and cats and dogs they're my friends so uh, yeah that's that's my touring schedule is lots of little mini tours
0: and why do you still do it I mean Jethro Tull have now had their 50th anniversary last year uh, 52nd year you're in now you don't have to tour you must still get something out of it yourself Ian
2: well, it's a personal challenge, isn't it, really, to, you, you know what you've been capable of in years gone by, and even if you know there are some things you can't do, there are some other things you can do that you couldn't do before. So it is all about that little tiny little adjustments to aging and and finding that there are areas in which you can continue to improve as a musician, you can refine your performance, you can... Um, perform, of course, different material, which is the other thing that out of all the records we've ever made, you know, our, our set list is, is uh, apart from three or four songs that are always going to be in the set list, you know, the rest of it is is a very movable feast. And that keeps me engaged is the process of learning and relearning music that maybe I wrote or recorded 40 years ago. And in uh, and, and this upcoming 2020 year of touring, there's, um, there's quite a few songs that I haven't played either ever on stage live or maybe not in the last 30 years or something so they they are um, a little bit of a challenge to learn again but but usually I find um, the investment of time is it's probably going to take me longer to work out what Hugh Cornwall wants me to play in uh, in uh, in, uh, Wells Cathedral on Friday than it will for me to relearn one of my older songs some of them are a bit complex um so they, they take a little longer to learn than others <laughs> but uh, you know usually i find it comes back to me I, I remarkably you can pick up on the um on the essence of what these songs are it, it you hear them again and think goodness me i can't remember any of that it sounds totally alien and yet within within two or three minutes it's come flooding back to you and you start to you kind of know where you're going. You know where the next note is going to be. You, you know your own way of thinking and making music. So relearning isn't always such a, a penalty.
0: And when you're doing that relearning, Ian, do you go back to your original recordings or you just look at the the songs in manuscript?
2: I go back to the records and I usually send um, send us reference tracks, the MP3 files to the other band guys. and they, I try and do this many months ahead so they have you know, plenty of time to to uh, make some general notes and then when we absolutely confirm we are definitely going to go ahead with a particular song then we all invest a bit more time and effort to learn it properly but starting off you know you've got to get a sketchy feel for how it works and then maybe try it out at a sound check somewhere (laughs) it's it's interesting from the band perspective because some of these pieces of music were written before some of them were born and um, but they too having worked with me for 10 or 12 years or whatever it might be or 15 years they they kind of know the way i think musically so they can usually get a pretty good idea from my styles of writing that helps them even if they're learning a piece of music from 40 years ago they've never heard before they they kind of get a feel for it pretty quickly because they know from working with me how i work so it's, but it's, it's enjoyable to do that. You know, I, I like practicing and rehearsing. I like the procedure of, of coming to grips with something that's part of my musical heritage and seeing if, um, if I can make that work in the context of a concert today. And Usually I can. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it just sounds wrong either dated or something, maybe the lyrics, I just can't really get my head around singing those words anymore but in most cases it, it, it works out pretty well. I, I don't have many rejections. And in that case the
0: song wouldn't make the set and you choose something else?
2: Indeed, and, and usually any set we, we probably come with 50 more, 50% more material than we're actually going to use because somewhere along the way we may substitute songs and um, so we do try and prepare a certain amount of um, variability Pre-plan that for the, a year of touring, so that we don't have to always play exactly the same set every night. Although in a production show, when you've got video and more complex issues of technical production, then it, it, it's not um, not something that the um, you know the sound guys or the lighting director like. They don't they don't like things to change. <laughs> they like to know what's going to happen next. So we have to be a little bit um, careful
0: and diplomatic if we decide to change a song one night. Well, let's go back to the very beginnings, and I think the first music you were exposed to was actually from your father's record collection, and we're going to play some songs. So let's talk about some of those very early recordings, Ian, that you were listening to as a young boy, a young man. Well, I was about seven or eight years
2: old when I started to listen to some of the music that my father had on uh, his small uh, 78 RPM record collection. It was, it was big band wartime jazz, and um, it was in some way captivating because all I'd heard musically up till then was maybe a little bit of Scottish folk music or church music and so suddenly the, the world was opened up to me with that syncopated jazz sound that um, I don't know why but it, it just somehow gelled with me and then a few years later when I heard the first American blues artist that came over to the UK it all went into place you know I realised the origins of of uh, jazz and blues, and uh, and the, c- the cultural history of Black America, and how that had infused the early days of rock and roll, and even the early Elvis. You know, was drawing upon those elements of uh, of, uh, of Black American blues, which I guess were in some ways as alien to him as they were to middle-class English schoolboys.
0: Because what Elvis was just too glitzy and too showbiz.
2: Well, Elvis in the early days wasn't... You know, he, he was kind of an interesting character for those first couple of years. I've I played a f- two or three times in uh, in uh, in Nashville um, and there was um, there's a theatre there that's famous as one of the venues of the Grand Ole Opry and Elvis auditioned for that and was turned away. They said, you'll never make it here, boy, you know, get out of town. And so he was bitterly disappointed and went back to... Uh, went back to um, his, uh, his hometown again, having been cruelly rejected by the Grand Ole Opry, which was the, the beginnings of all country western and bluegrass and the whole movement of American music, the heartland of Americana. And Elvis was rejected, and, and yet oddly they had a picture of him backstage Uh, lining the the backstage corridor the dressing room area with pictures of all the famous people who played there and including Elvis which I thought was very disingenuous since they'd given him the the heave-ho, he was never (laughs) allowed to actually play there. There was a picture of Elvis in those days with a you know an improbably baggy suit you know with really baggy trousers and which when he did his shaking leg thing the trousers flapped like, uh, like, um, like something from the Spanish Armada you know caught in a in a in a in a crosswind, it was it was, uh, it, was it was kind of fun. I, I sort of half liked early Elvis around the time of Heartbreak Hotel and Blue Suede Shoes and that stuff. But by the time '69 had come along, he he was uh, and I we we actually went to we were in Las Vegas and we had a night off and we went to see Elvis performing at one of the casinos and it was in his um his his white um his white jumpsuit days with all the sparkly glitzy, diamonds and things on it and I mean he just was it was just I mean for me really very very sad watching this guy who was either um, he, he clearly wasn't well he, unfortunately he was himself that's the self that Elvis had become he was out of it on drug drinks or whatever and um, couldn't remember the ways to his songs were just generally shambolic and and um, and I um, blotted my my copybook. Um, by politely declining not to uh, go to Elvis's dressing room to say hi, because he'd heard there was some, you know, English rock band in the audience and we were summoned to his dressing room. But I, I wriggled out of it on behalf of the band who were a bit miffed, because they wanted to go meet Elvis, but I, I, what, what can you say to someone you've just watched and you thought the, the inevitable thing that you would say, oh, love the show Elvis. Well, no, I didn't, it was, it, it was, it was terrible. You know, it was embarrassing. And I, you know, I, just, I just couldn't face saying hello to an Elvis that I thought by that stage had just lost. The thing that he had in those early days, which was, I think, quite remarkable looking back on it. You know, it was quite a, it was a real sea change in American music. And of course it, 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 uh, it, it was everything that, that we then knew about rock and roll in the UK. And in the, in the wake of that came Marty Wilde and Billy Fury and Cliff Richard. and and uh, we had our own little mini Elvises (laughs) which were part of my late school days of of seeing um, our English pop stars um, who didn't do the kind of music I wanted to do but it was um, nonetheless it was a looking back on it with a mixture of nostalgia and um, some degree of disbelief that's actually what happened we who grew up with with jazz and blues and pop music, we we instinctively understood syncopation. If you if you work with a classical orchestra, which I've done many times, it's something that for them is very alien. It's written on the written on the page. You know, they're following the music, but to do accents, um, it's something they don't feel. They can see it, they can play it, but it doesn't have that groove. You know, it's just um, if you haven't learned to play that way by the time you're in an orchestra aged you know 30 or 50 you're probably never going to really get the hang of it it's just too late i, I know professional flautists for example who uh, very late in life are trying to sort of do what i do because they they realize something is missing from their musical world you know that they never learned to do that thing and uh, when i last saw james galway famous Probably the most famous classical flautist in the world, 80 years old this year, and he um, he said to me, "Oh, I'm I'm taking lessons. I'm taking flute lessons." I said, "Oh, really? <laughs> A bit late to start, James. You know." I said, uh, "What what in?" He said, "Well, I'm learning to play. I'm learning jazz improvisation." I said, "Wow. Um, well, great stuff, James. You know." Uh, He said yeah i've got somebody who's writing it all down for me (laughs) the whole point is improvisation comes from here not from something written on a page you know bless him he's um you know he knew that he had to try to learn something new and he said he said you know it's a really big challenge to try and think in a different way about music but in a sense thinking is the last thing you want to do it's something you need to feel in your heart somewhere and you just need to find that groove and then as as you would say, riff on it. You know, develop, improvise, extemporise, have fun, make mistakes. I said, that's what I told you. I said you're going to play lots of wrong notes. Don't let it get you down, because only by playing the wrong
0: ones can you find out which are the right ones. <laughs> Fantastic advice. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah.
1: Podcast radio.
0: Let's talk about your first performances and, and how you came to be a flautist, not a guitar player. You rejected the the rather drunken and debauched Elvis, but why the flute? How did that come to be your your instrument of choice? Well, like many people growing
2: up in the um, in the '60s, the guitar was the you know was the weapon of choice, and and we all wanted to be guitar players. Uh, it was around that time. I mean, maybe the model for most of us. In the early 60s, would have been Hank Marvin of the Shadows, and he, you know, he played very cleanly, very precisely. But was there was something about his style of playing that that you know? I guess we all wanted to be able to do that. You couldn't make any mistakes; it would be really obvious if you played a wrong note if you were playing FBI or Apache or whatever. Um, so it was his expertise, his um, discipline, and his accuracy that was very impressive. But I guess what appealed to me was the more slightly more radical and improvisational stuff that I heard from Black American Blues. And and um, so that was what I learned as a teenager, you know, 15, 16 years old, I started playing the guitar and trying to um, draw upon uh, Black American Blues. And yeah, I could improvise, play a bit here and there, but when I heard Eric Clapton in 1967, Early '60, end of '66, beginning of '67, he just joined John Mayle's band, and uh, and I realized this this new guy, he was just so far ahead of me and other people. I thought, you know what, it's going to take me a while to catch up, and, um, and then to compound the issue, you know, I heard, I heard Jeff Beck, and uh, and uh, and Jimmy Page, and uh, Richie Blackmore, and uh, and of course Jimi Hendrix came along soon, so. You, I realized that I've had to find something else to do not to be a third rate guitar player, but decided I should be a second rate flute player instead that's one step up you see and the flute wasn't the common instrument in uh, i mean it was it was played in jazz usually by saxophone players as a second instrument it was fairly common in particularly Irish folk music it was an instrument in you know very prominently um, used in Indian music and in other ethnic music forms but it never really made it across into blues and certainly not into rock music um, I wasn't the first flute player around in 1968 January when I was first heard playing a flute on stage but um, the other guys I mean not, not to be cruel but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of competition in the sense of either Um, technical ability or in terms of innovation and um, so I guess I stood out from a very small crowd as being someone who was using the flute in a much more aggressive and um, expressive way that made it in the early Jethro Tull suddenly the the equal to the the electric guitar as as a lead instrument in the band and not everybody liked it even one of our managers suggested that I politely put the flute back in its case and learn to play as he put it rhythm piano and stand at the back of the stage and let Mick Abraham's our guitar player be the front man and do all the vocals. So, um, needless to say I didn't take his advice. Thank goodness. Well I, I I think what happened in the early days at the marquee was that the audience made that decision that um, we very quickly built up a following week by week until we, you know, we were doing pretty well and we moved quite speedily onto playing theatres in 69 and you know, the venues like the Albert Hall you know, within a year or so. So our, our rise was fairly quick. And um, I think the audiences decided the novelty of the flute was something that identified the band and made us different to the other bands, particularly the other blues bands who were all guitar dominated.
0: Yeah. And that image of you, um, Ian, playing the flute and, and standing on one leg was on many Jethro Tull albums and it became you know very synonymous with Jethro Tull. Was that deliberate or was that just one of those things that just happened?
2: Well, it, it, it just happened in the sense that I used to play harmonica in those early days at the Marquee Club as well as the flute. And um, when I played harmonica, you know, kind of cupped the harmonica um, and, uh, holding the mic stand and the microphone at the same time to get volume and so I used to stand on one leg I lift one, one leg up I, I claimed spuriously, perhaps that uh, this was um, because my underpants were too tight and when I sucked in the, the notes on the harmonica because in the blues harmonica you suck more than you blow uh, and that one leg would involuntarily come off the ground and uh, I joked that my underpants were too tight and that's why that happened I Blame Marks and Spencer um, but the um, the first people who ever wrote about Jethro Tell noted two things they noted that there was a guy who stood at the front and played the flute and they noted that he stood on one leg and those two things then got linked together and so this idea of the one-legged flute player pose was actually really invented by the very first Journalistic reports of Jethro Tull, to which I thought, "Oh, now I better learn to play flute standing on one leg." Which I, and then of course you've got nothing to hold on to to balance. You really do have to balance, and so that became uh, rather like Chuck Berry's duck walk or Pete Townsend's windmill motions playing the guitar, or or Joe Cocker's sort of um, flailing hand moving sort of imitation thing when he was singing. You know, he was, uh, you know, if you've got some little bit of shtick like that that works, then it's quite lucky to have that. You know, I I mean, so the lucky thing is, poor old Jimi Hendrix, I have no teeth at all by now, because he he would have, as people think he played the guitar with his teeth, of course he didn't really, just using his fingers, but he made it look like he was playing with his teeth. Um, And, um, you know, people who have those little quirky
0: things, you know, some, some of them get a little difficult to do when you get older. Um, you wore very tight trousers, didn't you? So it was a very sleek figure of you with one leg with the flute. It was quite a, you know, almost like a sort of stick figure in many ways. You, know, you were very slim and you had these very tight leggings on. They were stretchy. They were stretchy. Yeah, so it did, it did allow for a certain accommodation
2: both of the, uh, of the, um, of the male equipment as well as uh, not necessarily ripping the knees all the time. So I, I went out of my way to try and find quite stretchy Tight trousers and um, and of course that and it's that gave way to them actually being tights, moletic tights. So there was the tights and codpiece era, which was um, perhaps taking it a step too far.
0: And distinctive.
2: Well, certainly it was distinctive. It was also very hot and sweaty, and and uh, but on the other hand, tights are a lot easier to, to wash in the in the the hotel bathroom basin than than a pair of Levi's. So you know, there was a certain method in that madness. You know, I, I wore clothes that were. You know, could could be kept clean relatively easy because it was um, it was you could look after that stuff. And of course, I didn't wear underwear underneath because there, w- there would have been a VPL. So it was just tights with uh, nothing underneath.
0: A lot of information there. Thank you for sharing that intimate know, all detail.
2: Ca- <laughs> all carefully masked by a very uh, um, carefully crafted codpiece made for me by the costumé of the Royal Ballet. who modeled my cod pieces on himself and I thought seemed to fit me really well That's great I said how did you know my size he said well I was watching you when you when you walked into the uh, the meeting that we had some weeks ago he said we looked about the same
0: size down there thank you for noticing. (laughs) I guess that was flattering and a great story so let's talk about the the first album then this was and then following this was you were asked to write a, a hit record and you had a big hit record
2: Well, we've had a few sort of of top-of-the-pops moments, but... um, It's your first one, I think. Well, I think the first single, it was successful. Uh, We we had... um, I think Love Story was released in um, November of 1968, uh, backed with a a song called A Christmas Song. That was the first single. Uh, Song for Jeffrey actually might technically have been the the first single from the first album, but the first dedicated single was uh, later that year and it wasn't until 1969 when we went to America for the first time that our manager said, can you go upstairs and, you know, we just checked into a hotel. He said, can you run upstairs and write a hit that we can record? Just in, like that? Yeah, right, right here, write and, a and hit. And then, and then we can release it in England while we're away to keep, as he put it, to keep the pot boiling while we were away. And uh, so I said, to humour him, I said, yeah, sure. Just give me, a, give me an hour, or so I'll, I'll meet you back in the lobby with a hit single. Yeah. Just winding him up. But I did go upstairs and I sort of got, had, had my guitar with me. and you know messed around a little bit and I said I said okay I think I've got a song he said what's it called I said "Um, well it's not really a very trendy sort of um, you know contemporary song it's called Living in the Past oh and I said and it's not in kind of a normal sort of straight ahead um, time signature it's actually in 5-4 time signature oh he said so I said but it's all I've got so let's record it And we we went into a studio and did this and um, and uh, I think I we recorded the backing track and added some orchestra in New York and then I went to we then found ourselves in San Francisco when I did the vocals and the flute and quick mix sent it back to England and it was released and lo and behold it got into the actually got to number three in the charts so it is I think to my knowledge the second of of two pieces of top ten. Popular music, the first being Dave Brubeck's Take Five, and then um, and then uh, Living in the Past in five four in 1969, and and it made an impact on lots of people because of its time signature. It was you know I tried to write it in the way that had enough repetition and phrasing that you could kind of hang on to the melody line without counting the awkward bar lengths of five four, and um, I think it worked. So I decided since Dave Brubeck had followed up take five with a piece of music called Unsquare Dance, which was less successful, which was actually in Sevens. It was in, in uh, Seven 4 time. And so I, I wrote a piece uh, a little later in, uh, in Sevens, 19, I think in 1977, which was released as a single at Christmas called Ring Out, Source Dispels, uh, which also got into the charts. So I think Dave Brubeck and I both had this sort of almost weird, thing of having done two really unlikely pieces of music in in compound time signatures which actually crossed over the boundary into commercially acceptable and popular music and I I sort of feel looking back on it I feel quite good about that you know it's just to in a way demonstrate that a good tune is a good tune even if it doesn't fit all the rules of you know what perhaps would be the um, the songsmiths factory production hit record as was evidenced particularly in the 80s and 90s by well, somebody, Aitken and Waterman or somebody who used to Stop. churn out these hits. Churn out the day. music factory. Yeah, yes. yeah, you know, based on really formulaic music and when you know what works and you can repeat that trick, then of course you're inclined to do it because you may make a lot of money. Maybe the artist doesn't because you probably screwed him down to some terrible royalty deal. But, you know, it, um, it, it, it works to do that factory production technique. But I, I rather like breaking the rules and finding a way to still make that, if not a huge hit, at least it becomes accessible to the public. And I think that's the story of Jethro Tell's uh, Musical career really over the years is it's not being mainstream; it's being out there on the on the periphery of it all, and uh, and still managing to find some level of success, being uh, being a little
0: less obvious. Songs from the Wood was a different sort of album, wasn't it? It was a, a change in direction for you.
2: It, it was a fairly deliberate attempt to employ some elements of of uh, folklore and tradition without it necessarily obeying. The, um, the lightly written rules of, of folk rock which had been I suppose set out by Fairport Convention and Steely Eye Span notably um, so I didn't want to try and sound I didn't want to make a record that was trying to be folky in the traditional English folk sense I wanted to write something that, that a bit more eclectic that used elements of, of the kind of music we would describe as, as being uh, folk but in very loose terms and, and, and employing some elements of, of um, some tradition and some, uh, some I, I think it was Joe Lustig our, called himself our manager, he was really our PR man back then he gave me a book for Christmas uh, which was uh, a book of uh, fairy tales and legends of, of Britain and, um, and I read this book and found it you know, really quite fun uh, you know, I'd, I'd had a little whiff of that as a schoolboy in Scotland. So, using some of these elements of folk tradition and folk memories, it was uh, it was a it was a great gift that I was given, and allowed me to uh, utilise some of those things in songs, like songs like Jack in the Green from the Songs from the Wood album, that came directly from that that book that that Joe Lustig gave me. And uh, I'm not sure that I ever really thanked Joe enough for that. You know, sadly he died many years ago, but. If he was around today, I would give him a big hug and say, Joe, you know, you, you, that, that book was a source of half a dozen, you know, really good songs on, on that album and perhaps on the subsequent album too. So uh, sometimes you get those little inspirational moments that um, just are literally a gift. You know, they, you, they, you pluck them out of thin
0: air. Somebody gives you something or says something or you see something on television, suddenly there's a song there it's a it's lovely, a lovely album and certainly you know, all my friends were listening to that album we certainly had many evenings you know, drinking and listening to that album going back in time though Too Old to Rock and Roll Too Young to Die mm. uh, another song I think people have got a huge amount of um, association with because we all feel like that I think don't we well
2: I, there's nostalgia and there's um, I suppose the fact that you place in certain times of your own life you'll, you will relate to certain little key moments and they may be things you identify through a movie you saw or a book you read or something you know TV series or something and, and of course music is kind of up there at the head of the list that people will talk about um, you know the musical soundtrack of their lives or some such uh, uh, trite and well-tried phrase but uh, you know in essence there is a lot of truth in there I think that people hold very dear these um, ways in which they relate to their own earlier uh, life and it it, it speaks them, in a way of, I suppose, giving them a bit of an anchor, a bit of a you know roots that they can easily relate to. But in my case, I don't really musically have too many of those. I've always been a bit restless. I kind of move on. I don't, not a nostalgic person about about much in the way of anything really. But um, you know, I do look back on music with less than nostalgia, more than more of a historical or music musicologist's kind of appreciation. Things I didn't really realise at the time were as good as they were. Uh, El- the early Elvis being an example, you know, I, I now realise how important that music was. But there are other things I guess that I I do sometimes uh, look back on and think, um, remember the time when? But it doesn't happen very often. Not nostalgia is, is something I've always been a bit You're wary of. You're looking forward all the time? Well I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward but with an eye that is somewhat educated by my own past, but but I I don't I don't sort of look back, you know. I would, sometimes you get this with with guys in the band, or road crew, whoever you know. Remember the time when, and and we have a little laugh about some odd escapade or or, or occurrence. But it, it I I don't get the feeling really that it's quite as much as it is for other people who will relish their their past. Perhaps a family, you know, they love to talk about you know, when they were kids and doing this and playing that and going wherever and, and uh, I, I guess um, I'm not really quite as connected in that way. Privately I probably am, I do think a lot about my, my my youth and my early days but I'm not particularly fond of talking to others about it, some of it. I guess it's too personal and too private, you know, I don't feel that uh, I want to divulge that. One of the reasons that as a songwriter I don't usually write about real people I I write about characters a lot, but I'm more like a scriptwriter. I'm writing, I'm inventing characters. There's sometimes amalgams of different people I might know or know of, but I'm very careful not to write songs about an individual, and especially a relationship, that somebody would feel betrayed by my using as the stuff of of the lyrics of a song. And with that in mind, I was was asked to do a movie once in 1972, I think, and it was a movie uh, that was made, and it was called Made, M-A-D-E. And they asked me to do this, and it was a song, it was a a movie based on a character who is a songwriter, sort of singer-songwriter kind of guy, who gets into a relationship with a girl, and he has a big relationship with her, writes a song about their relationship very intimate and this becomes a hit and um and then he dumps the girl and she feels totally betrayed because their relationship is in this song and she thinks of something intensely private that shouldn't have been used so she is um taken advantage of in that way almost like intellectual rape and uh, you know and it was a it was a decent enough idea for a movie but the trouble was when i read the script i realized i had, I had to get my kit off and have a bath with um, with um, well, a famous movie actress at the time, whose name escapes me at the moment. But she was um, <coughs> had big affairs with people like um, uh, Burton and Peter Sellers and people like that. You know, she was a, she was a, a a very kitchen sink drama kind of very successful English actress, um, but a bit of a tortured soul. And she was cast as the the, the female lead. And I thought, I, I can't do this. I, I don't want to be naked in bed or in a bath. So you declined. Scene, so I said, I'm sorry, this really isn't for me. I don't think I can do this. Um, but I know a man who can, I said. <laughs> and I, so I called Roy. Well, I, I gave them the tip after. Call Roy Harper. He's a friend of mine. He'll, he'll, and Roy did it. Not only that, but he then, after he'd made it, towards the end of making the movie, arrived at my house in the middle of the night, knocking on the door. I said, right, well, that's what time it is oh, can I just come in, man, have a cup of tea or something? <coughs> and he'd, he'd um, you know, we, we sat there for about an hour talking or something, and he, I said, uh, right, I've got to get to sleep, now. it had been great seeing you, but, you know, I have to show you the door. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, oh, I just realised I left Carol in the car. And he, He'd left his co-star sitting in the car outside all this time. And, and in real life, he was having an affair with her. And it was, um, it was like, you know it was like the
0: it's uh, a soap uh, opera real closing, life one. <laughs>
2: closing the circle of this uh, you know and it was kind of weird and embarrassing and um but yeah roy roy did it and i i saw the movie it was actually okay but um it uh, it never never made it into the into the um into the current age of something you will see getting played at christmas or or on uh, Netflix or something. But, uh, well,
0: your friend Roy Harper saved you. And last question: I mean, lots of collaborations. Roy Harper, of course. Uh, Fairport Convention, Men Without Hats, Joe Bonamassa. Quite a range of different people you've worked with over the years.
2: Yes, it, and and you know, it doesn't happen that often. It's just there've been a lot of years. <laughs> you only have to clock up maybe a couple of them every year, and you've got uh, got a hundred guest slots on people's records. But no, it's it's not even that many. It, it's just I think what. I think what interests me is, is people who ask me to do something and it's not my kind of music. Because then I have to learn some new tricks, which is good for an old dog, to to go through that procedure. So I rather, you know, like tackling some in fact I've got one to do I can't do it tomorrow, but maybe the day after or early next week to play on somebody's album. And um and, and in fact of course I've got to play on two two tracks of a uh, few Cornwalls, so um, you know, being the Stranglers, front men and singers, coming to as a guest at uh, Cathedral this week. And, you know, these are good things for me to do because they're not necessarily what I would choose to play. I have to find a way to, to slip into somebody else's musical world respectfully, mm-hmm. not to overdo it, not to be too flashy, not to be too complicated, but to try and find some poignant addition that I can make. and. I think that 's a very good thing to learn to do, um, and i 've been trying to do it for m- most of my musical life, um, sometimes I think quite successfully, other times you know it 's been not maybe such a nice fit, not so elegant but you know I do try it's just like sometimes see people want you to do what you do they want you to stick on their music the thing that is your signature, your trademark, and I try to look that's not going to work in this song, it's going to wreck your song, and other times you know, you, you have a, a free hand and you do what you think is right. And I played just recently on something from Mark Armand, um, and, um, and it was quite an easy one because musically this particular song of his, it's not released yet, and, and for me to play something on the flute it was actually a really easy fit so that that was a nice easy one to do but there are some times when it can be a bit of a struggle you know trying to find the find the key that opens that particular musical artist's door and you're you enter into his private space or her private space and you've got to be so
0: careful not to you know not to mess up the bed sheets <laughs> Yeah, I love the way of have explained that. Well, look, Ian, thank you. It's been a total pleasure. Well, thanks very much for, um, for indulging me and uh, sorry that I, I talk too much. <laughs> Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull without the codpiece and before that, Biff Bifford of Saxon, two different shades of the very best in British rock music and hopefully both back on the road very soon. very much after the Olympics we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford and it's not the Shakespeare one there's this other place where we built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks and then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with you actually look at it you go well why isn't there a local radio station for East London and that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully
1: be involved in
0: that so there's those two reasons it's like well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station around here, let's give it a go see what happens, it really was just like that
1: We are
2: the voice of East London E.L.R. East London Radio on podcast radio to find out more visit eastlondonradio.org.uk
0: This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to podcast radio for more private lives very soon.